0: Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is day four in our 12 Days of Christmas essay series. I'm going to be talking about Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. One essayist that I'm not going to talk about in this series, except briefly now, is Christopher Hitchens. Though I know a lot of people who think he is one of the great essayists. He has lots of fans, lots of fanboys. He wrote an enormous array of essays on an incredible range of subjects. A lot of them are really good. He was always fluent, sometimes quite funny, unbelievably opinionated. A few years ago, the LRB organised a panel to talk about the legacy of Christopher Hitchens. He died more than a decade ago. I was asked to chair it, and we all took him very seriously. We were quite earnest about him. But one of the panellists at the end said to the rest of us, what you Brits need to remember, and this was James Walcott, an American journalist who has a column in Vanity Fair, where Christopher Hitchens also, for a long time, had a column. James Walcott said, What you Brits need to remember is that in America, Hitchens is only really known for one thing. If you say his name, the response you'll get is, Isn't he that guy who wrote the essay about why women aren't funny? And I'd forgotten about that essay, but it's true. He did, in 2007, write a An article in Vanity Fair in his column, literally called Why Women Aren't Funny. And I went back and reread it. And I think if I was doing a series on the worst essays ever written, that one would have a pretty good claim to be in it. It hasn't aged well, let's put it like that. The argument, insofar as I can understand it, is something like, because women do childbirth, And childbirth is no laughing matter. It's the most serious thing there is. Therefore, women are serious. And because men are excluded from childbirth, they panic about that because they're excluded from the most serious part of life. So they have to make a joke out of everything, which is why men make women laugh, but women don't make men laugh. As I try and reconstruct it, it's clearly nonsense. I don't understand it. It's a terrible essay. It provoked a furious backlash, unsurprisingly, and it allowed Hitchens to say the predictable thing, which is, don't you get the joke? Don't you people realise that I was joking? Doesn't this prove my point? I was just trying to be funny. He's like the playground bully who beats you up, and then when you complain about it, tells you you haven't got a sense of humour and beats you up for that. I found myself thinking about this Christopher Hitchens essay when reading what is perhaps the greatest essay of the 20th century, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, published in 1929, based, as so many essays are, like Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, originally on a talk, in this case, a pair of talks that Virginia Woolf gave at two colleges, two women's colleges in Cambridge, ostensibly on the subject of women and fiction. I thought about Hitchens for two reasons. First, because A Room of One's Own is really funny. I want to say it's surprisingly funny, not obviously surprising because it's written by a woman, but surprising because it's not a particularly humorous subject matter, women and fiction and men and power. And it doesn't have a reputation, I think, as a humorous essay, but it genuinely is not laugh out loud funny, not probably what Christopher Hitchens would think of as funny, but it's impossible to read it without smiling because it is so light and self-deprecating, but also constantly taking the piss out of itself, but also out of men. And the kind of men it's taking the piss out of are men like Christopher Hitchens. That's the other reason I thought of it, because one of its themes is the propensity of male writers to write about women, about what women are, about what women are like. Are they funny? Are they not funny? To generalise, to make these sweeping statements. And that is Wolfe's subject matter. And she was writing nearly 100 years ago, but as Christopher Hitchens shows, it still happens. Men do it about women. Women then, and to a certain extent now, do it much less about men and when women do do it about men, men hate it. And the evidence for that from now is Kathleen Moran has just published a book about men and men hate it. It's had a furious reaction. As Catelyn Moran wrote this week in the Times, the bookshops are still full of women's sections, books about women. Virginia Woolf says of women, we are the most studied animal in the universe. But there aren't sections of equivalent books about men, certainly not written by women because men hate it. That's her subject matter. Part of the reason that A Room of One's Own is so light, so amusing, so enjoyable to read, is that it is a kind of meta-essay. Wolf writes not just about her subject, but about how she comes to her views about her subject. She's not just commenting throughout on women and men and fiction and power. She's also commenting on how she comes to think about what she thinks about. She says, I quote, When a subject is highly controversial, and any question about sex is that, one cannot hope to tell the truth. One can only show how one came to hold whatever opinion one does hold. And one of the things she kind of takes the piss out of in this essay is the business of essay writing, the certainty with which the essay writer tends to approach his, it usually is his, subject, laying down the law, taking the reader through his chain of thought as though there was something sacred about this. Virginia Woolf is aware in this essay, simultaneously, that that's what she's doing. She really is laying down the law here. Her arguments are not just persuasive, they are overwhelming but at the same time, she knows how ridiculous that is. It's always ridiculous for one writer to claim to know the truth. It's also not just a meta-essay, but a pure form of the essay, because it is a literal walk, this one. It is the story of a walk or a series of walks. In this case, not in the woods, but in town, or in two towns, or in a hybrid set of towns. It begins... With a set of walks that Woolf undertakes in a kind of fictionalised Oxbridge. And part of the playfulness of the essay is a lot of it is fiction. It involves the creation of fictional characters, fictional women, a series of women called Mary who become the the proxies for Woolf's description of women's experience. But it begins with her walking in Oxbridge to some colleges, to have a series of social occasions, lunch in one case, dinner in another. This is the 1920s. So all of the colleges in Oxford and Cambridge, bar a tiny few, are male preserves. These are colleges for men, peopled by men, male students, male academics. And she begins with lunch in one of these colleges, rich, prosperous, comfortable, incredibly comfortable, delicious lunch, great food, wine. And she reflects on how easy it is to have higher thoughts, elevated thoughts, to reflect in the way that the essayist has to reflect on the nature of fiction and truth and life. When you're comfortable, when you're so well off, being in one of these colleges feels like the kind of place you want to be in to have these kinds of thoughts. And then she goes to one of the women's colleges for dinner. And it's very different Because the women's colleges are not particularly comfortable because they are poor. They have not been given these huge endowments. They don't have centuries-long histories. They don't have land. The food isn't great. It feels straightened and constrained. It's harder to relax. It's harder to be comfortable. It's harder to escape a constant consciousness of your material circumstances in the women's colleges. Because, as she says... Men have the money and women don't. This is true in the 1920s in all aspects of life, including in higher education. And so you see it literally in the buildings and you feel it in the chairs and you taste it in the food. And so that then leads to her next question and her next walk, which is, how did this happen? Well, in a way, the answer to that is not complicated. Men had money and they left money to establishments and institutions that continue the privilege of men in education. And women lacking those assets were unable to do that. As Will says, our mothers couldn't endow these colleges because they had nothing to endow them with. That's not a question. A question is to understand what is women's experience of this, the history of it, the centuries-long history of this, of this kind of exclusion, how to understand how it's been experienced by women to go beyond her own personal experience of one lunch and one dinner to something broader, more general, approximating at some level to the truth. And the only way to investigate that question is to read some books, to see what's been said about this, to try and understand other people's descriptions of this divided world of the privileged and the disadvantaged. One sex has the privileges, the other sex is denied them physically denied them, as Woolf discovers when she tries to enter buildings in Oxbridge from which women are excluded, including libraries. So her next walk is in London. She goes to the British Library to read the books that are written about the experiences of women in this world. And this is the old British Library, not the new one by King's Cross, but the old one that was part of the British Museum, which had a celebrated reading room under a huge dome And under that dome, many of the great books were written. Karl Marx sat there and wrote Das Kapital. And Wolff describes entering the dome as being like becoming a single thought under one vast, domed, bald head. Bald because this is a man's version of knowledge. All the books that she asks for about women are written by men. And so to escape from her personal experience to get a broader view, to try and understand the impact of this male privilege, to use a more contemporary term, she can't escape from the world of male privilege because the world of learning and of books and of knowledge and of history is itself the province of men. So far, in a way, you might think so familiar, less familiar to be writing this in the 1920s, but now. But the idea that the advantages that men have is then reflected in and shapes the world of knowledge and learning is perhaps not a particularly surprising thought. Might be depressing, but in many ways it's familiar. But then Wolf moves on to her next question, which is more original and in some ways harder to answer or to understand. Because as she reads these books, written by men, by professors, by historians essayists, all the essays by men about women, she notices a feature of them. These are the people with the power and the advantages. How do they treat women? How do they write about women? So you might expect them to be dismissive or disdainful. You might expect them to be complacent or patronising. You might expect them not to understand what women's experience is. And all of these things are there in this writing, but that's not the feature that stands out for Wolf. What she notices is how angry the men are, that the dominant emotion running through this writing, and it is emotion, not dispassionate male inquiry, is anger. She says, I quote, why are the professors so angry? Why are they so angry about women? And it's not just the professors. She has another walk because people need to have lunch. And this is an essay which describes people needing to have lunch. So she goes to a cafe, a little restaurant near the British Library to have lunch. She picks up a newspaper and she reads a newspaper. Newspapers in the 1920s are the province of men. They are edited by men. They are owned by men, by wealthy businessmen. They write primarily about important men. The politicians at this point are almost all, not entirely, but Very nearly all men. The occasional woman is allowed a word on the sidelines, but this is a male world, and in it, men are angry about women. The women who are excluded are nonetheless also subject to contempt. Why? This becomes Wolf's question, and it's a question that speaks to so many different aspects of modern life. Why are the powerful people the angry ones? And she has two kinds of answer to this. One is that like all powerful people, like all people with inbuilt advantages, men feel the need to justify it. It can't just be arbitrary or random or even luck. Somehow they have to have these advantages for peace of mind, believing that they've earned them or deserved them, that they are worthy of them. And the way to achieve this is to maintain the distance between the advantaged and the disadvantaged, the men and the women. And as Wolf says, to see reflected in women the reasons why men have the advantage, to maintain that gap so that, this is how she puts it, the women think of the men as heroes deserving of these rewards. But it's very hard to maintain that gap. And Woolf notes in the early 20th century, the gap is closing. And as the gap closes, through the suffragette movement and women acquiring the right to vote, through women in tiny numbers starting to enter the male professions, through women having colleges at Oxbridge and beginning to be allowed, just beginning to be allowed to take equivalent educational qualifications as men, as that gap closes, it's harder and harder for men to justify their advantage. And the response is anger to try and push the women back to maintain the gap, because without the gap, if it's shrinking, then it starts to look more arbitrary, more like luck, and less like natural justice. The second reason is that within that generic story, men need to feel there's something special about men. The men who have the power in that world, because lots of men do not have power in that world, there are lots and lots and lots of disadvantaged men too, But the powerful ones, the businessmen who own the newspapers, the editors who edit them, the bloviating columnists who write in them, the politicians that they write about, all those men, that small group of individuals, need to feel that they're special too. Again, that it's not luck that they are where they are. It's not just because they have material advantages, but they've done something to deserve it, to earn it. They've risen above the crowd. Those individual men need to feel that. So pointing out that it's generic, pointing out that first part of the story, that there are, as it were, two groups here, the powerful and the disadvantaged. And to be part of the powerful is the most important part of being able to stand out from the crowd makes the most successful people furious because it belittles them. It implies that they haven't done it by their own skill or grit or determination or strength of character. They've simply done it because they are the fortunate ones. It was true then, it's true now. People whose fortune, whose good fortune, is primarily conditioned by circumstance but presents to the world as individual accomplishment, really, really hate having that good fortune pointed out. Bankers hate being told, That the reason they're so rich is not that they're good bankers, but just that they're bankers. Paul Krugman, the New York Times columnist, wrote an article not that long ago about a puzzle which is not that different from Virginia Woolf's puzzle. Thinking about contemporary American politics, he wants to know why are the angriest people, or as he puts it, the craziest, most paranoid, angriest people, the tech billionaires? I quote Krugman, arguably, he says, the craziest faction in US politics right now isn't red-hatted blue-collar guys in diners. It's technology billionaires living in huge mansions and flying around in private jets. They are the ones who are angry about the way that the world is going, even though no one in the world is doing better out of the way the world is going than them. Why are they so angry? because they need to justify their privilege. And the privilege can't be justified if you think of the world in general, structural, generic terms. They want people to recognise their specialness so that they can be comfortable with their wealth. And anything in politics that moves towards a vision of the world, which sees it in terms of groups or classes or identities or structures, makes them mad as hell. But then there's another question. And Wolf moves from question to question. And part of the strength, the appeal of this essay is the way in which she's always one step ahead. Because now there's something else that has to be faced up to in a world in which men are angry because the special men don't like to be told. They're not special. They're just men. What about the men who are special? This is a essay about writing, fiction, creativity? What about the truly great ones? Because there are some men who genuinely do stand out from the crowd, who transcend their circumstances. And she picks the unarguable example. I say unarguable, I know one or two people who think that this person is massively overrated and can't understand why he's revered as a god but that is a minority view. I think most people are happy to accept that Shakespeare was special, transcendently special, a completely unusual kind of man whose gifts, extraordinary gifts, are unique to him. And faced with an example like Shakespeare, can one really say he's just the product of, of his privileges as a man. He's just a product of the circumstances which allowed him to express himself, that allowed him to be the person who has the thoughts that transcend the place that he comes from. It seems absurd to say that Shakespeare is simply a product of his privilege. And it is absurd. But as Will says, it's also true. Things can be both absurd and true. It's not Sufficient to be Shakespeare to have been born in the circumstances in which Shakespeare was born, above all born a man, but it is necessary, and Wolfe illustrates this with her famous example, her counterfactual of Shakespeare's sister. Imagine that Shakespeare had a sister, Judith Shakespeare, who was as gifted as he is or was, with all of his special qualities and all of his appetite to to transcend, to become a kind of universal voice. Imagine that that was a woman. It would have been impossible. It would have been impossible for Shakespeare's sister to be Shakespeare, to write. Partly because the barriers in the way would have been insuperable, and Wolfe describes them, to be born as a woman and to be raised as a woman with the expectations attached to being a woman put impossible limitations on the possibility of true artistic freedom, or even the ability to write at all, to to be on the stage. This is Elizabethan, then Jacobean England. The barriers are insuperable. They can't be broken down. And a woman who tried would simply be defeated. So there is a almost physical constraint. Fathers would get in the way. Officials would get in the way. Buildings would get in the way. Doors would would get in the way. You could batter in the doors. They wouldn't open. They just wouldn't open. They opened for Shakespeare. They wouldn't open for Shakespeare's sister. That's the first barrier. But there's a second barrier, in in many ways, a bigger barrier, which is to have been raised in that world, to face all of those constraints, makes the kind of universal, transcendent thinking that Shakespeare achieved, the ability almost to understand all things, impossible. Because your whole life is limited by, conditioned by, the struggle to break free. Shakespeare's sister could not have written the plays of Shakespeare, Wolf thinks, because that kind of imagination cannot be liberated under the circumstances in which a woman has to fight simply for the right to speak at all. You are so consumed by the fight that you cannot get beyond to that higher plane, whatever it is, where Shakespearean thoughts are possible. So one way to put this, and this is how Wolfe does put it, not quite in these terms, but almost, it's the difference between belonging to a group, and it doesn't just have to be women, there are lots of other groups of whom this is true, that is treated with contempt as men treat women, particularly the idea of women having those kinds of thoughts and being free to express them. The response of men for almost all of history, right up to the 1920s, was contemptuous and being treated with disdain, with indifference, which is what men tend to think about other men born without their advantages. So a writer who comes from nowhere but is a man has to overcome his circumstances. The example here would be someone like Charles Dickens. So if you're Dickens, you aren't born into privilege in any meaningful sense, apart from the fact that you are born a man. That's your privilege. But otherwise, no money. His father was a debtor in debtor's prison. No educational advantages, none of that Oxbridge nonsense. As a child, forced to work in a boot blacking factory, miserable, a miserable childhood, a constant struggle, from which he emancipated himself by force of character, by talent, by unbelievable resources of energy to become Charles Dickens. He escaped. And what is the response of men to a man who escapes circumstances like that? It's a kind of hat tip. Well done you. That was impressive. Good on you. There's a sense in which a man confronted with the indifference of the world, as Dickens was as a child, can assert himself and become the person he wants to be by force of character, because to become Charles Dickens is not to be the object of contempt. But a woman who arises from unpropitious circumstances to give voice to her views in written form or to find some vehicle for artistic expression isn't greeted by men with a well done you. The contempt grows, the anger grows for all the reasons that Wolfe has articulated, so that the struggle doesn't end Sure, Dickens was haunted by his childhood, and in some part of himself, he was always fighting against it. But he was accepted as a man who had made himself. But a woman who tried to make herself in the same way, Wolfe says, would never be accepted. So the writing would always reflect the struggle. The transcendence can't be achieved, because there is never the moment at which you feel you have broken free, because the world will always try and put you back in that box contempt doesn't dissipate when it's confronted with the person who is the object of contempt doing well for herself. It grows. Or another way to put this is to say, what do you do if you are confronted with contempt and you want to be the female equivalent of Charles Dickens or William Shakespeare? Do you confront it back? Do you address it? If you do address it, you are sucked into it. You, in a sense, allow the contempt to take over some of the space that you're trying to transcend. Or do you ignore it? But if you ignore contempt, it doesn't go away. You can ignore disdain in a way because it will go away because you prove yourself. But if you ignore contempt, it grows. There is no way out. It's a kind of catch-22. You can't ignore it and you can't address it because by addressing it, you allow it to poison what you want to do. The essay is full of these kinds of explorations of the traps into which the powerless, in this case women, find themselves in a world in which they are trying to transcend the circumstances of their powerlessness. One of the things that a writer needs to do, Shakespeare, Dickens, anyone, is to build on what has been written. No writer is some kind of free-floating spirit who genuinely comes from nowhere, Dickens wasn't uneducated. He lacked the benefits of the best formal education. He was self-educated, and he was a voracious reader of all those books in the British Library. He didn't read them in the British Library, but all the books written by men. The men who transcend their circumstances do it off the back of all the writing that has been done by men. That's the thing that they transcend. But there is no equivalent body, not even close of women's writing. There's men writing about women. But women writing about their own experiences, telling their own stories, there's a void there. Those stories are untold. There's nothing there. So what do you do as a writer who wants to transcend simply being a woman to become a writer when there is nothing to transcend because the stories haven't been told? And again, of course, Wolf is aware of the counter-argument the one that men will make. She knows they will make it because they make it all the time. If a woman says, our circumstances make it impossible to do what men do when it comes to writing the great books, which is to point out, well, women have written the great books. What about the great novelists of the 19th century? If you leave Dickens out of it, who are the great novelists of the 19th century? Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, George Eliot, Women have written the great books. They have transcended their circumstances. They have transcended their disadvantages. The theme of Wolfe's essay, which is given in its title, or at least one of the themes, is literally the need to have a room of one's own. That is, in order to be able to escape the material limitations that shrink the imagination, there needs to be not just artistic freedom, but material freedom too. A room of one's own, and as she says, £500 a year, which then meant enough to live on, the security that comes with knowing that it's not always a struggle. And a room of one's own, a space, a physical space, a space that is not a barrier, but is a kind of haven, is the precondition to transcending material circumstances. You need the room to get out of the room. Charlotte Bronte didn't have that room. Jane Austen wrote her novels in public rooms, in sitting rooms. There were people around. She had to shield what she was writing from people who might be peering over her shoulder. And yet still, she wrote the transcendent novels. If you go to Haworth, the birthplace, the house that the Brontes lived in, grew up in, the parsonage there, which is preserved as a, a museum and a kind of shrine, to the Bronte's, it's a for many people it's a place of pilgrimage. There's a table in the front room at Haworth. Small table. And on one side of the table it says, This is where Charlotte Bronte sat and wrote Jane Eyre. And on the other side of the table it says, This is where Emily Bronte sat and wrote Wuthering Heights. So not even a table of one's own. One table. I mean that table has some claims to be The greatest table in literary history. Those novels were written by women who did not have the material resources, the privacy, the space, even the minimal comfort needed. But they still did it. So as some men might say, what's all the fuss about? It is possible to transcend without having the security to do it. Woolf just isn't buying any of it. There is no equivalence between Shakespeare's transcendence and Jane Austen or Charlotte Bronte's transcendence. Shakespeare, as Woolf says, is writing at a time where no women were writing sonnets, but every man seemed to be tossing out a sonnet as often as he has breakfast. There's a volume, a, a great sea of writing beyond which Shakespeare soars. Though there are one or two handful, literally a named handful of women who would have written and been in the, the world of reader's imagination before Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. It is a tiny vanishing number. There's nothing there. They were not transcending a world of women's experience. They were standing in for it because there's nothing there and no one can stand in for it there is still a huge absence. It's the difference between the people who rise above a world of mediocre writing and the people who rise above silence and all the untold stories. There is no absence of male stories in the world, boring stories, repetitive stories, the same old stories told over and over again. There are an awful, awful lot of bad books written by men when... Wolf went to the British Library. She was surrounded by them. And she is describing a world where there just aren't books written by women, and the stories are not told. The stories of great women, the stories of ordinary women. Descriptions of what the world is like as experienced by a woman is just absent. And as she says, I want to read the story of the girl behind the counter, not the 150th biography of Napoleon, or the 75th story of how Keats wrote his poetry and then died so young. But the story of the shop girl is missing. It's not there. And that means there's a kind of paradox, which is, I think, the central theme of this essay. And it is a quintessential modern paradox. And it has all sorts of variations. It goes well beyond women and fiction. It goes beyond just the question of men and power, though it is a question of power. The paradox is that in order to get beyond material limitations and material constraints, the circumstances in which an individual life arises, in order to be emancipated from circumstances, you have to concentrate on circumstances. You have to focus on that. You have to address it. You have to address the question of who has a room and who doesn't, of who has the money and who doesn't, of who gets to eat well and who gets to eat badly, of who does the housework and who goes out into the world to bloviate, of who has the clubs and who's excluded from the clubs. You have to address all of those material social questions, not so that you can write novels of material social realism, not so that you can focus your attention on the circumstances in which people are born, but so that you can get beyond it. If you don't address it, it will consume everything. Both ways, both the powerful and the powerless, will be trapped in this relationship in which those fundamental disparities come to constrain and contaminate all attempts to transcend them. She illustrates this through the example of sex and sex difference itself. That is the difference between the sexes, between men and women and their circumstances. Women disadvantaged because of their sex, men advantaged because of their sex. She wants the kind of transcendence of those circumstances, which allows the true expression of that difference. But also, as she puts it, the possibility of a reconciliation of that difference, because the ideal, she says... The ideal writer is androgynous. The ideal writer is man, woman, or woman, man. At one point in the essay, she says, the world is too complicated to be divided between two sexes, let alone to be colonised by one. You have to get beyond sex difference, but to get beyond sex difference, you have to address it. You have to recognise all the ways in which sex and the differences between the sexes, their social, economic, educational lived experiences, shapes everything. She describes a kind of, not ideal, but future form of women's writing, hypothetical women's writing. And she describes it like this, of a, an unnamed or unspoken future novelist. She writes as a woman, but as a woman who has forgotten she is a woman. So that her pages are full of that curious sexual quality which comes only when sex is unconscious of itself. I mean, that is a pretty complicated state of mind to arrive at. You get beyond it in order fully to express it, but the full expression of it is the thing that allows you to transcend it. But the only way that's possible to write as a woman who has forgotten she is a woman is if the material circumstances allow you to forget that you're a woman. And in one somewhat controversial passage in the essay, Woolf says, it's impossible without some kind of material freedom. It was even impossible for Charlotte Bronte, much as Jane Eyre might be held up as this this novel that goes beyond all of the constraints that she faced to provide it. A universal or universalizable, accessible to everyone account of some aspect of the human experience. Even in that book, even in Bronte's writing, Wolf says, there's a bitterness, there's an anger that limits the book because everyone is limited by anger. The anger of men makes women angry. And Wolf says, when she comes out of the British Library to get her lunch, that she is steaming mad. She is furious with all these men. She gets beyond her anger, partly when she starts to think about why are they so angry with me? You can't escape it. You can't forget your situation unless the situation is addressed first. In some ways, what Wolf is describing is the paradox of modernity. That sounds pretty portentous sort of thing that a male essayist would say, but it's not true, but it's It has something in it because there's something going on here, which is more than just the question of how to write and what it means to be a writer. That's Wolf's central theme. And she says that for there to be the best possible women writers, the great ones, there just have to be more women writers. There have to be more women who write for a living, like men do. There have to be, frankly, more women writing books that aren't that good, but are at least books written from their experience, so that some women, the most gifted, the ones who are capable of transcendence, can transcend that. More women have to live from their pen, that is earning enough by writing, so that some women can live simply to write. That's what it's about, but it's about more than that. It's about power. It's about anger. And it's about what it means to be an individual in a world in which we are all constructed by our social circumstances. Modernity makes two demands of all of us, one of which is that it tells us that we are unique individuals. That's part of what the modern human experience is built on. The idea of the individual's conscience, the individual's freedom to express him or herself, the ability of people to forge their own path. The emancipations of modernity, the liberal emancipations, are designed to give individuals the chance to make their own lives what they want them to be. And we're all at some level conditioned to think that that's part of what it means to move through life, to shape it ourselves through our experiences. And at the same time, modernity is a scientific project of a kind which seeks to understand things in general terms, not through religion, not through superstition, but through observation and through generalization to trying to find patterns. Modernity is about finding patterns as well as about the emancipation of the individual. It's about great art and it's about sociology, both at the same time. And so each individual at the same time as being told you can be what you want to be is also told you are a product of your circumstances. You belong to a group you belong to an identifiable set of conditions, which make you who you are, this thing, this creature, that's also meant to be whatever it wants to be. And the paradox is that both of these things are true. We are both the individuals that we create for ourselves. And we are also the products of our circumstances. And the challenge for anyone, but particularly for anyone who wants to as Wolf puts it, and these are her terms, grasp reality, because that's what she says is the job, at least the job of people who want to share their thoughts with the world, written thoughts, their ideas. The job, whether it's fiction, whether it's history, whether it's philosophy, the job is to try to get a grip on reality. And reality is hybrid because it has these things going on at the same time. It is both the world of individual experience and the world of collective formation. It is both social circumstances and the transcendence of social circumstances. And it is incredibly hard for anyone, including for a writer, including for a novelist, or a historian, or an essayist, to hold those two thoughts together at the same time. Some people can do it, and the people who can do it, the people who aren't just androgynous in sex terms, but are androgynous in those terms both individual and social. They are the ones who ultimately come closest to gripping what reality is. But it is incredibly difficult. And only a few people can do it. This is not essentially, I think, in a room of one's own, a democratic vision. There is a democratic aspect to it, the sharing of privilege and a certain equalization of core material advantages. But this is also an essay about greatness and the possibilities of greatness and the few who are capable of it. At one point in the essay, Wolfe says, women like herself have been given some advantages recently. She came from a relatively privileged background. She came from a family, the Stephen family, that were well-connected and she took advantage of those connections and so on. She's not portraying herself as an up from her bootstraps kind of writer, but she says she she had two advantages. One was a bequest that allowed her the £500 pounds a year an inheritance. But the other, like other women, is that from 1918 to 1928 in two acts of parliament, women are enfranchised on the same terms as men. So Wolfe got access to some money, And she got access to the vote. And she says of those two, the first had by far the biggest impact. She needed the money. She's not disdaining, never mind having contempt for the democratic emancipation too. But this is about material conditions. But it's not democratic also in the sense that it is partly about trying to create an understanding of the circumstances out of which the people who are nothing like anyone else are given the freedom to express themselves. And it reminded me in part of another essay written or published 10 years earlier in 1919 that I spoke about in an earlier series of History of Ideas, another essay that began life as a lecture. This one explicitly about politics, Max Weber's lecture, Politik als Beruf, The Profession and Vocation of Politics, in which he describes... What he thinks is the central paradox of political modernity, which is to be one of the people who rises above the crowd, to be the leader, to be the person who sets a vision for a nation or for a movement, the person who gives voice to a whole host of hopes and fears that most people have no opportunity to articulate. To be that person, to be the politician, is to have to try and reconcile the fact that you are both your individual beliefs and your conscience, your convictions. It has to be an individual project. You have to believe the stuff that you're trying to convey and get across and legislate for. And you are also entirely a creature of circumstances. You can't rule as yourself. You can only rule at the head of a party machine, at the head of a vast bureaucracy, on behalf of a giant state. You are entirely constructed. Your power is constructed not by you, but by the circumstances in which you find yourself. And at the same time, you have to give those circumstances your distinctive take. If it doesn't come from you, it will be hollow and empty and mechanical. But if it does just come from you, it will be detached from reality. What's true of politics is probably, to some extent, true of writing too, including of fiction. And one thing that Woolf's essay suggests is that it's not simply that the powerless find it hard to strike that balance. The powerful do too. That's why they're so angry. They want to prioritise individual experience. If you have the power, the thing that you think you have to celebrate is your individual take on that power. And so you get very angry when people try to suggest that it's not you, it's your circumstances. Men, powerful men, overvalorize their individual experience of the world. It's not worth what they think it's worth because it's not as individual as they think it is. The powerless, the disadvantaged, and that includes, when Wolfe is writing, just about all women, are constrained by their inability, completely understandable indeed, inevitable inability, to get beyond their knowledge, which is their personal knowledge, that their social circumstances have limited them have ruled out all sorts of things that any human being might want to do, have trapped them in sets of circumstances that men are allowed to break free from, have shut doors that are open to men. If you spend too much time preoccupied with that, you will find it much, much harder to give voice to your individual experience. If you spend your time preoccupied by the unique interest of your individual experience, you will forget all the ways in which you're not that special. And then a few people will be able to do both. But in order for those few people to be able to do both, it is imperative that whole swathes of people are not ruled out altogether, are not trapped in their social circumstances. So however transcendent their individual vision, it is never given an opportunity to express itself. You have to at least equalise the opportunity to fail at reconciling these two things. If some people, the greatest possible number of people, are going to succeed. And that, I think, is part of what Wolf means by the importance of having a room of one's own. Having a room of one's own does not guarantee anything. Certainly, having a room of one's own, being free to sit and write relatively peacefully, or pontificate and podcast relatively peacefully. I'm sitting in a room of my own now. I'm sitting at a desk. I'm on my own. I'm talking. But this is only possible because of a kind of material freedom and security. But it doesn't guarantee that anything that I say is going to be, never mind transcendent, even interesting. I have the freedom to do it, you have the freedom to listen or not to listen. Having a room of one's own doesn't guarantee that you will transcend your circumstances and resolve the paradox of modernity, which is how you reconcile individual experience and social construction. Of course it doesn't. It doesn't guarantee anything in that sense. It just provides the minimal bedrock condition for it to be possible. But not having a room of one's own guarantees that it will be impossible. To find out more about this podcast, please follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. Tomorrow, it's day five in the 12 Days of Christmas essay series. I'm going to be talking about George Orwell's The Lion and the Unicorn. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books.